The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born in 1902 in Salinas, California, placing him in the same generation as F. Scott Fitzgerald, born in 1896, and William Faulkner, born in 1897, and Ernest Hemingway, who was born in 1899. But although he was as famous as those three and won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962, John Steinbeck was different. A writer of popular fiction, a writer for the people, a writer appreciated by readers, perhaps, more than critics or fellow writers. He grew up in a small rural valley that benefited from some of the world's most fertile soil, 25 miles inland from the Pacific Ocean. He grew up working on ranches and sugar beet farms, and he kept his eyes open, observing the hardships of the working life, the darker side of migrant existence, and indeed, the darknesses of the human soul. He loved walking through forests and fields and farms, and later in life, he spent time on the coast, and he loved that too. His mother, Olive, used to be a schoolteacher, and the two of them loved to read. And when he went from Salinas High School to Stanford University, it was English literature that became his passion. He never finished college, instead traveling to New York City, determined to become a writer, and willing to take odd jobs to support himself. Things were rough for a while as he bounced from place to place and job to job, struggling to publish his fiction, but perhaps becoming a writer nevertheless, as the jobs and experiences and changes in locale became the raw material for his fiction for many years to come. From New York City, he went back to California and then to Lake Tahoe, where he met his first wife. After working for a while as a tour guide and caretaker, he embarked upon a scheme of manufacturing plaster mannequins, which lasted about six months before he, and perhaps the mannequins too, went belly up. Now he went back to Monterey, California, where his parents had a cottage he could live in for free. They gave him paper, too, and loaned him money while he wrote. He bought a small boat and went out and caught fish and crabs to eat. He combined this with fresh vegetables he grew in his garden and the occasional theft of bacon for a treat. And he was writing, publishing his first novel in 1929, followed by three shorter works. Finally, at age 33, he had some success with a novel called Tortilla Flat, which was made into a film with Spencer Tracy and Hedy Lamarr. And if you don't know anything about Hedy Lamarr, you should Google her. She was like the most beautiful woman in the world, literally, who was also a total brainiac who invented things in her spare time, including an improved system for radio-controlled torpedoes that was supposed to help beat the Nazis, except the military didn't recognize its potential until the early 1960s when it was installed on Navy ships, and it formed the basis of technology that was adapted and that we know today as Bluetooth. Hedy Lamarr, movie star and genius. Spencer Tracy was pretty awesome too, not an inventor, I guess, but a powerful actor. That's Tortilla Flat. But now we're off track. Back to Steinbeck. His great topic after that were his California novels and his Dust Bowl fiction as he tracked the Great Depression and its effect on working-class people, farmers, and families as they traversed the nation, struggling and surviving. He wrote Of Mice and Men, the story of two farm workers, which was also a popular Broadway play and has been made into a movie several times. And he wrote what might be his best work, The Grapes of Wrath, which won the Pulitzer Prize and was made into a famous John Ford movie starring Henry Fonda. 
He wrote travel books, he got divorced and remarried, and he wrote novel after novel. He wrote Lifeboat, an Alfred Hitchcock movie, and he visited Moscow to see what the communists were up to. In 1952, he wrote his biggest book, East of Eden, which was turned into a movie with James Dean, in which our own super guest, Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, will be here today to talk about. Steinbeck's a true American, a true American writer, a prolific teller of tales and chronicler of 20th century lives, an infectious writer with an easy prose style and a deep empathy for the battered and bruised, the downtrodden, the hopeless, and hopeful. His books are frequently taught and were frequently banned. The Grapes of Wrath achieved the neat trick of being banned in the United States by certain counties and communities that called it, quote, a pack of lies and, quote, communist propaganda, and also being banned in Stalin's Soviet Union, where the ruling Communist Party were concerned that the book showed that even the most destitute Americans could afford a car. Two more Steinbeck stories to end this little segment, and then we'll get some listener emails. We have some incredible ones to share this week, and then we'll roll out the big Kona himself. Mine, well, I was, I was going to say mine president, but that would really be mine Führer, wouldn't it? If we stick to German, and we're not going to go there. So let's stick to El Presidente, Mike Palindrome. First little tidbit is from Steinbeck's Nobel Prize for Literature Acceptance Speech, in which he said the following. Quote, the writer is delegated to declare and to celebrate man's proven capacity for greatness of heart and spirit, for gallantry and defeat, for courage, compassion, and love. In the endless war against weakness and despair, these are the bright rally flags of hope and of emulation. I hold that a writer who does not believe in the perfectibility of man has no dedication nor any membership in literature. End quote. That kind of captures Steinbeck, his aching morality, his optimism, his desire for improvement, even a little bit of preachiness. He risks sentimentality, he risks preachiness, because for him, writing matters. We're all trying to make the world better, we're all trying to treat each other better. And if that means sometimes you have to come right out and say what you think of the world and how it should be, well, so be it. Steinbeck didn't care if he erred on the side of bold statements at the expense of true art, which often demands subtlety. The second story is one I love so much I hope it's actually true. Steinbeck's wife was in Japan, the story goes. She went to a bookstore and asked if they had a copy of The Grapes of Wrath. The store owner shook his head. Well, said Mrs. Steinbeck, disappointed, do you have anything at all by the great American writer John Steinbeck? Oh, Steinbeck, yes, yes, said the bookstore owner, and he went and got a book and handed it to Mrs. Steinbeck. She looked down, and on the cover it had the title, Angry Raisins. Let's take a quick break and come back with our emails and then our conversation about the great John Steinbeck. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, our first email is from Sean. Subject, guilt. France, February 2020. Mon cher Jacques. Yes, I think this is what you really mean by Jack with an E. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, I would love to be French. If only the French would have me. I fear they would reject my poor Wisconsin body like a team of white blood cells attacking an intruding disease. But I can dream. Back to the email. I have been such an appreciative listener of your podcast from as long ago as the Jack Wilson show. I think it was from about 2014. God knows how I stumbled across that. <laughs> God knows. I am a vigneron. In English, it is wine grower, but it means much more than that. And I listen to your humble musings while I go about my tasks in the vineyard. Oh, my goodness. First of all, yes, I have no idea how you found that Jack Wilson show, although lately I've been getting more than a few notes about that thing. That was a strange one. Strange, strange little show. But secondly, listening to the humble musings while working in the vineyard, a vineyard, I am kind of excited to be going along for the ride. I like being in the vineyard with you. Feels good out here. Baking in the sun, pulling weeds, growing things. Email says, each year I spend about three or four months outside in the winter pruning and preparing my vines for the forthcoming season. It's a time of year of such brooding, given the vines are dormant in the freezing cold here in southwest France. But it's also hope, communicating expectation in the way I prune and train the vines. Train the vines? <laughs> I didn't even know you had to do that. Oh, I want to be a vigneron. Train vines, Sean says. So, doing these things, it seems apt. I have the chance to not only listen to your current shows, but also to ruminate on the older ones. Possibly quite a few of your more than a million downloads are due to my re-listening. Oh, no. Let's not tell our advertisers, Sean. Let's keep that between us. We're rapidly approaching two million downloads. That's a good point for the advertisers. We don't want to have an asterisk in there with... Saying some, there's some freak in France who listened to 100,000 of these. I'm just kidding. I don't think you're a freak. I'll amend that to some kind soul in France. I said freak just for the joke. There's a vigneron who's 
living my dream life. Downloading these like crazy. I have rediscovered so many writers, says Sean, that I had treasured in my youth and been awakened to so many new through your podcast. With regards to the latter discoveries, Nausgaard. After listening to your show with Monsieur Le President, Mike, I wasn't at all sure I should read the Norwegian fellow as your praise was faint. Furthermore, I've always taken Mike's criticism with more than a fair share of saltiness after he erased Don Quixote. I've read it twice. <laughs> of course, I read the first 50 pages of book one, Mein Kamp, and was trying to find fault and put it down. Well, now book one is read completely and I've ordered book two. It seems Monsieur Le President has some credentials for us literature supporters. I guess he does. I guess he does. Maybe I should add Monsieur Le President to my list of foreign titles to use for Mike since I've rejected Mind Fuhrer. Mike's a Francophile. We have an episode coming up that will tap into that. Email continues, but my greatest appreciation is for you, Jacques. Your Brazilian friend's letter made me feel quite guilty of all the sublime and human moments you've connected us with. You've done it without any expectation of reward from us hard-hearted literary lovers. You've been preparing your own vineyard here. It will yield the deepest and best wines, I am sure. I don't know how to repay you, but I will buy you a few cups of coffee from the internet shop. And of course, if you or any history of listener... Sorry. If you or any history of literature listener is in southwest France, I'm pouring for us as long as we can talk about these books. All my sincere wishes, Sean. Wow. Now. Wow. The current travel restrictions and the coronavirus have made this something we need to postpone. But I can tell you that Mike was ready to go. I forwarded him the email and said, road trip, question mark, and I could hear him packing his bags and checking the expiration date on his passport from down here, hundreds of miles away. I would love to visit you, Sean, and I appreciate the offer. And I'm not sure when I'll be able to get there. But I also love the idea of a history of literature listener get together. So if anyone is heading to southern France and would like to drop by Sean's Vineyard and get together to talk books, shoot me an email and I'll pass it along to Sean. Don't send it if you're a criminal or a weirdo, just if you're a nice, healthy, sane person who happens to be on a trip. And I'm not going to give out Sean's information. I'm going to let Sean decide. Don't make this backfire on me, people. But if you do get together and share a glass of wine, Tweet me an image, and I'll forward it to all my followers. This could be very fun. I will be with you in spirit. How fun! Thank you, Sean, for giving me a boost today and for giving me some reason for hope. Next email from Dicty. Subject, my time was stolen. First line of the email, and you, sir, are to blame. Where has it gone and why the hostility towards me, you might ask? And that is just silly. You are a smart man. You must know the answer to the accusation. (laughs) Let me interrupt here and say that I never ask why the hostility towards me. I always just assume I deserve it. (laughs) I'm surprised by anything other than hostility. Email continues. My time, of course, was stolen by your podcast. Hours have already been spent listening to your voice, which I must add is quite a soothing one, since I discovered your podcast only a few weeks ago. So I blame you 
for me no longer seeming to have any time. Hmm. Perhaps I should introduce Dicty to my candelabra toothbrush and my method for putting on my pants both legs at a time. Maybe that would be helpful. Back to the email. But don't fear. I don't really need to see my friends keep up with my studies or visit my mother. <laughs> as, you, as you might have caught on. <laughs> as you might have caught on. It is therefore a both friendly and grateful blame if such a thing exists. For I adore my time being taken by the history of literature. So thank you for the many hours spent so far and the many hours to come. I, of course, don't know you, although at times it can feel like I do, but I should apologize for the dramatic opening to this email. Who knows what this seemingly rude accusation could have done to you. Someday I might write you an email with suggestions, but for now I just wanted to let you know that another person has found their way to your podcast and is very pleased about it. The best from Rainy Arhus, Dick Day. Dick Day! Thank you so much for this beautiful email from Rainy Arhus. I am so glad to hear you are enjoying the podcast. I've gotten a few ma- a few emails from Arhus. I'm big in Arhus. <laughs> I should get a t-shirt printed with the names of cities, like a concert tour t-shirt. That would be pretty great. On the front, a picture of a Coked up Jane Austen, snarling, having just bitch-slapped Charles Dickens. Hey, hey, calm down. This is how rock and roll works. I don't make the rules. Coked up Jane Dickens cowering while Emily Bronte stands off to the side, her eyes closed, in the middle of a hot guitar lick. Yeah, I Why does my mind work this way? I'm seriously thinking of getting a t-shirt like this now. Black, of course, like my heart. Worship Satan. <laughs> my old high school acquaintance with his satanic Bible and his speech impediment. Have I told you about him before? Worth it up. Let me summon the voice. Worth it, Satan. Ah, yes. Now I know why I'm so weird. I can blame the 1980s. Final email today. Email from Drew. Subject, thanks. Jack, thanks for the show. I came on board this month as a Patreon member and look forward to doing a small part each month to assist your effort. I am a career firefighter with a degree in literature and have listened to many episodes during downtime at the station on the treadmill or lying awake in between runs. For years, I have been a spurt reader and plowed through one work after another for months then didn't turn a page for several more. I've also actually done what others have alluded to and regretfully purged many of my books during periods of confusion and dismay. The history of literature has reminded me of the value and enjoyment books and reading have played in my life. As I approach a true midlife milestone and an upcoming empty nest, I welcome this reminder and now have a refreshed list of novels to work through. In addition to my enjoyment of the show, I also appreciate and am impressed that you actually managed to fit it in and stay on schedule. I did my time around Crazy Town prior to the fire service and found it hard to maintain time and motivation as stresses mounted. I did manage to read a few classics while traveling the multicolored lines around that area with Madame Bovary being one. No match for your exposure, but still a treat to escape the day as I made my way home. As for the attachments, I was rec- he sent some images. I was recently in Richmond, Virginia for work and walked to a used bookstore near the VCU campus. I was glad to give them my business and couldn't pass up this version of the Dubliners. And the images he attached are 
show the Dub- the Dubliners in the Pulp Fiction style cover. Pretty amusing. I hope you get bumped. I. I know you get bombarded with requests, but I'd feel like a slacker if I didn't load you down with another opinion. If you get around to it, I think Kundera and a full episode devoted to Ulysses would be interesting additions. Thanks again, and good luck. Drew. Oh my goodness, those are two great suggestions. Mike Palindrome is a huge Kundera fan. We've been talking about doing an episode for a while now. I'm sure he'd be up for that one, although he'd want to take six months to prepare, and I'm not always willing to wait. Not because I'm not patient, but because I get too many angry emails if Mike hasn't been on in a while. Mike's big in our house <laughs> and Mongolia and the Samoan Islands and New Zealand all over the world. Rock on. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to the Steinbeck. Except, Oh, except I do want to say a couple of things about your email, Drew. First, I am absolutely floored that I have a career firefighter listening to the show. I just love these images in my mind, and this one is a great one. Thank you for taking the risks that you do and helping to keep people safe. And I'm humbled to know that my little podcast helps keep you company during the downtimes. Many thanks for your email. And here we go. Guess what? You call yourself a slacker, and you refer to your experience with Madame Bovary. And issue a request for Ulysses, and guess what? I'm wondering if all these clues are adding up to something. And if that something isn't our old friend Christina, who joined us for the Moby Dick episode. As you may recall, she spent a whole night on the Charles W. Morgan in Mystic Seaport, up there in Connecticut, and then joined Mike and me to tell us about the experience. She's also working on a series of books called The Classics Slacker Reads. And the first one was The Classics Slacker Reads Moby Dick, and the second one is Madame Bovary, and she recently emailed to confirm that Ulysses is indeed on her list. So if we don't get to our full Ulysses episode for a while, you might want to join your fellow slacker, who is really not a slacker, and neither are you. We just hold ourselves to high standards when it comes to literature, don't we? In any case, do check out the classic slacker if you get the chance. They're like Cliff's Notes versions written by a stand-up comic. Okay, that's it for the emails. We'll be right back with Mike Palindrome. And oh, we haven't done the theme yet, have we? We'll be right back with, we'll do it now. We'll be right back with Mike Palindrome and John Steinbeck on today's History of Literature. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of John Steinbeck is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, we get a lot of requests for an episode on Steinbeck. Why do you think he's such a favorite? I think he's a quintessential American writer. Yeah. And there's something really heartwarming and comforting Yep. about his writing. I mean, it, I don't want to say he's he's not sarcastic at all, but his humor is like, it's almost like downright patriotic. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. It's not just that he wrote about the Dust Bowl and he writes about California and stuff like that. The first word I wrote down was heartfelt. Yeah. Um, open, honest, direct, uh, very accessible, 
Uh, people read him in high school. I also wrote down he might be a reader's writer rather than a writer's mm-hmm. writer. A lot of a lot of the authors we talk about, I would say, are kind of like writers' writers. But uh, he's a reader's writer. Yeah, I mean, it, we did an episode a while ago on like the readability index, and mm-hmm. I just feel like he would score like off the charts in terms of like how readable he is. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it seems like he's read in junior high school now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it's like when someone's assigned in junior high school, yeah, right. I, I feel like, well, maybe I should be reading Finnegan's Wake instead of reading like Cannery Row. You yeah, know? I mean, which that... is which is unfair. <laughs> which is, you know, well, that's the thing. I mean, he, although he's really a contemporary of Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Faulkner, he's not yeah. really placed in a group with them that often. I'm not sure he'd want to be. He doesn't seem to have sought out the company of other writers a lot. And when his play of Mice and Men was produced in New York, he refused to attend. He said that the (laughs) play in his mind was perfect and any performance would have disappointed him. So it's not like he was looking to be part of the circle. But when you were talking about him earlier, I was thinking, you know, he's a little more like Jack London than Mm, Hemingway, uh, Faulkner, Fitzgerald. And, And I remember reading Jack London in sixth grade. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i read white fang when i was like 10 i wrote i wrote down the i think i said this in the prior episode i wrote down the uh kept track of all the different animals that white fang had killed (laughs) (laughs) that's in my copy so whenever someone pulls that out they 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 see the stuff in the back because as i got older in high school i used to write down the words i didn't know oh yeah I can so remember. My, I can remember yes. reading uh, a copy of your Sun Also Rises, and it had yeah. written in there pantaloons. <laughs> <laughs> so someone will see that with my books, and then they'll pull up, pull out White Fang, and they'll be like, "What's this?" <laughs> like Quail Eleven. <laughs> I, I just kept track of. I mean, it was. Yeah. It's a bit of an unfair label on him because, like, Melville is considered prof- profound and philosophical, mm. mm-hmm. whereas Steinbeck is considered like of the earth and spins a good yarn. Yeah, right. Yeah, so. and you suggested that we focus on East of Eden, which yeah. Steinbeck considered his best. Uh, do you agree with that? You know, I, I really enjoyed it. It's one of these books that. It's so long that yeah. you know there are ups and downs, and you you start to think like, well, it could have ended here and there, mm-hmm. but but there's this one character, Kathy Trask, who I think is arguably one of the greatest American characters in American literature in the first half of like the 20th century, the 19th century. I mean, sh- and she returns which makes the the novel just come back alive. Like whenever mm. she's around, mm-hmm. it's just so much fun. The The setup is about this, the, this immigrant family that has two sons. And mm-hmm. one is kind of very, very almost like an animal, but, you know, is very protective of his brother. And his brother is more thoughtful. And a strange woman comes to town and you don't know her past and then you you hear about her past and this is Kathy Mm -hmm. and without giving too much away she's just really a remarkable character the the question is whether she can be redeemed or she's just pure evil and you know I was surprised to encounter a character like, like that in in Steinbeck I think I 
I, I think of Steinbeck as being like more like everything turns out okay or people learn their lesson. And I'm not really sure Kathy either teaches lesson a lesson or learns a lesson. Yeah. So and you... she's 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 like she's like that at Dostoevsky. I, that that's what I kept thinking. What drew you to East of Eden at this point in your life? I think it's because I I love the movie. Yeah. And you know, I was assigned Mice and Men in in high school but never read it. And I was thinking like how little Steinbeck I've I've read. I've probably yeah. read parts of Canary Row and and um a, a, fr- a good friend of mine who has taken a lot of my book recommendations over the years recommended East of Eden and I hadn't read it. So mm. I was like, let me read it. And I actually read it in a week, which was a lot of fun. Just every day in the morning before I went to work, I read it. Yeah. And when I got home, I would read it, you know, here and there. And then when everyone in the house went, household went to sleep, I would read it some more. And I was like, boy, you can read a 700 page book in seven days. <laughs> so the film, Elia Kazan, it's sort of famously one of uh, James Dean's. Oh, yeah. Three big movies. Um, Do you think this is James Dean at his best here? I mean, he really does come off as this mysterious, handsome, like mythic figure in a way that like Rebel Without a Cause, he's he's quite juvenile. Yeah, I don't really love his Rebel Without a Cause. I I know it might be more iconic, but yeah, I, I don't think that's a great role. Giant is pretty good. I haven't seen Giant in years, but yeah, yeah. East of Eden is beautifully shot. Like the, yeah. they ride on top of trains and like yeah, the des the 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 dry land. The I mean, it's just so visual, and I think it does a lot of justice to to the book. The way the characters sort of are so so much part of California. I mean, mm. California like a character. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's sort of the Cain and Abel story, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's got the the sons. I guess uh, there's the the lettuce farmer Adam Trask, and right. then he's got the uh, the bad son, which is played by James Dean Cal Trask, and he can't stay out of trouble, and he can never match the esteem with which his his father treats his good brother Aaron. Right. Yeah, I mean it's uh you you feel like he could fall into the trap of just making it one or the other. Mm-hmm. But without giving away too many plot points, each character sort of breaks out of their own yeah, stereotype that the father holds of them. It's almost right. like it's the reader, it's very clever the way Steinbeck makes it makes the labeling of the two sons the father's mm. uh, perspective. Mhm. Um, And it's very clear that that's the construct, because as the reader, you don't feel like that's really them. Mm, Right. And there's in the movie, the the kindly sheriff played by Burl Ives, uh, (laughs) he can see the goodness in the James Dean character. And so can Aaron's girlfriend, Julie Harris. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But where does Kathy fit into this? Kathy is their father's wife. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's estranged. She, yeah, she tries to kill him. Right. Because, and, and she's, she, does she run a whorehouse? 
she eventually becomes a madam, but yeah. Um, <laughs> I, we might as well just reveal everything because it's just so <laughs> fascinating. She is raised by two very, very repressive, um, strong-willed parents, mm-hmm. and they can't understand why she is weird and odd. And when she becomes a teenager, she sets the house on fire while they're sleeping and murders them. Mm. And that's a shocking scene. And then there's a break in time where you follow the two sons. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, not the two sons, but the, the father of the two sons and the father's brother. And then she reappears and she's a prostitute and her pimp is this married man whose wife doesn't know that he he runs these whorehouses all over the country. He mm. owns he owns like 20 whorehouses and she steals from him from him systematically and when he finds out he beats her. He tries to beat her to death and she's saved by a stranger and that's not Cal, but Adam, you said? No. What, what's Cal's Adam, brother? Adam is the father. Aaron is the brother. Aaron, Aaron, right. right. She's a, oh, sorry. Not not Aaron, but by Adam. She's saved by Adam. Mm-hmm. Adam nurses her to health, and then she keeps telling him, like, I'm not in love with you. And when she becomes healthy, she tries to escape. He tries to stop her, and he sh- she shoots him. Mm. The pacing of the book is brilliant. Like, he said that he wrote Grapes of Wrath really quickly. Mm-hmm. And East of Eden had a entirely different pace from any of his other books. That he wrote it very slowly, and he—I thought this was interesting. In an interview, he said that a big book is more important and has more authority than a short book. There are exceptions, of course, but it is very nearly always true. Mm. Which I thought was um, kind of these one of these weird statements that you would never—you feel like a writer shouldn't be saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. um, but but the 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 plot lines in East of Eden are very well crafted. Mm-hmm. Since I'm telling so much of the plot, um, Kathy eventually has twins, and the twins are Aaron and Cal, mm. and they don't know that she's alive. And she runs a whorehouse. She becomes a madam and she runs a whorehouse in a neighboring town to where they are. Mm. So eventually, eventually. Cal at one point uh, figures it out, right? Or he finds out he goes to try to get the money from her. Yeah, yeah. So Pauline Kael, the great New Yorker critic, said, It's far from a dull movie, but it's certainly a very strange one. It's an <laughs> enshrinement of the mixed up kid. Is that a. Uh, is that what draws us to the movie? I mean, I know uh, James Dean won the, or he he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for this. Is it, is it that it's it's so appealing to watch him try to make his way in the world, even though he's treated the way he is by his father? Yeah, I mean, I I haven't seen the movie probably in the last ten years. Having just read the book, you get the sense that these characters are not extraordinary, hmm. and that there's something very human without making it seem like they're an everyman. They're definitely unique, but they, yeah, they are mixed up. Yeah. Uh, All of them are. I mean, the only person who's not mixed up is this Chinese character, Mr. Lee, 
who's been the subject of a lot of criticism because he he spews all this philosophy about the way people should behave. And he's also asexual and a bit selfless. But other than him, everyone is sort of mixed up. Oh, well, he sounds like he's mixed up. Well, I mean, I think to modern oh, readers, he's right. mixed up. But he's not, more, he's problematic. Not yeah, 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 not not Steinbeck. I mean, okay. whenever he enters the scene, everybody is relieved that, you know, Lee is here. And th- there's, there's a bit of an awkward thing that Steinbeck does, awkward slash offensive, where uh, Lee talks in broken English. Mm, right. When he's around people who expect him to be very Chinese. And then when he's around Adam and Aaron and Cal, he speaks in regular English. Right. And I, I didn't know what to make of that. I mean, part of me felt like it was just so jarring to have to just read it broken English. Yeah. But then I was thinking like, oh, you know, Steinbeck in his own way was trying to deal with our stereotypes of the Chinese. Yeah. And it, it makes the character sound a little more like he's got some agency in that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I, I'm not sure I've ever seen that in like a novel mm-hmm. from that era in like the 50s, like where somebody affects a broken English to fit in. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, they say that about politicians, that they're they're campaigning in South Carolina and they're, they're oh, saying right. y'all and they're they're adopting this drawl and then they go somewhere else. And sometimes it's sometimes it might be intentional and sometimes people just fall into that when they're in different audiences or spending time in different places. But this sounds like it was very strategic of him. Yeah, I mean, it, he's a good foil. And, and it reminded me a little bit of Thomas Mann, um, the way he <laughs> he'll have a character who's clearly not realistic, but exists so that the, he can be a springboard for the realistic person's philosophy. Yeah, And also just back to my thing about the reception of East of Eden. I mean, it was a number one bestseller. Mm, yeah. But the some of the critics really felt that it was a bit of a, a slog mm. and it, or it was too simplistic, like 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 a child could understand it. <laughs> I mean, and it's it's such an interesting contrast from the reception of this and like say something like the glass bead game mm. by her. Yes. Mm-hmm. You almost really do get dinged for being too comprehensible. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So let's take a quick break and come back with more on John Steinbeck. But first, let me throw out, throw out my next question. Uh-huh. So during the break, our readers can wonder at what your answer is going to be. And my question is, I'm a little surprised by your taste for Steinbeck. You've sort of carved out territory for yourself as a literary snob so are you is part of you hate reading this or do you genuinely like it we will have your answer after the break okay we're back so mike he's criticized we're talking about john steinbeck now he's criticized for being overly sentimental a little broad a little too preachy that doesn't Mm -hmm. seem like your kind of thing what are you finding in steinbeck that you like? What do you find? And is what you find enough to overlook the flaws, if you agree that these are flaws? I, you know, he's really lacking in humor, which... <laughs> Another which flaw. I, 
<laughs> which I, you know, as I, I think I, I, I've told you, I, as I get older, humor is so important to me. Yeah. But there was something about the, the sprawl and the multi-generational story mm. here mm-hmm. that uh, I'm not sure I would like the Grapes of Wrath or yeah. My Cement as much as used to be. And I also, I, you know me, I, I love long books. Yeah. Um, the saga. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, on my to-do list is to read A Suitable Boy and <laughs> finish, like, USA by Dos Passos. And, yeah. I mean, I just, you know, there's something about the just a writer setting out to create such a long work. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can trust that writer. Yeah, I know. I know it's sometimes the opposite for readers. They're just like, well, if it's that long, like you're going to lose my trust if you can't convince me to stay with it. Yeah, <laughs> and I know you and I are like two of the only people who've read uh, The Man Without Qualities. <laughs> um, did I have you read The Good Soldier Svek? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. another. <laughs> I read that when I was another in Prague one. and Jeski yeah. Krumlov and. Um, <laughs> Actually, I, you know, a friend of ours, um, a mutual friend, Scott, I uh, told him to read it and he loved it. Um, so it's underrated. <laughs> <laughs> but, you um, know, I, I do I do agree that there, there were moments where he is sentimental. He can be sentimental there. When people are on, I feel like uh, I could do a Steinbeck, bit of Steinbeck parody about the deathbed scene. Hmm. But then I almost think it's like good medicine for me to read yeah. more sentimental stuff because there's I think especially growing up you know the way I did I feel like being cynical is the norm mm, mm-hmm. and it's not so healthy to be so cynical all the time. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you are really uh, I feel like I'm watching a flower open up. <laughs> <laughs> but now I am also reading Linda Nausgaard's Knausgaard's novella about uh <laughs> which which some people a lot of people are reading as a repost to my struggle. Right. And that book is all about revenge. <laughs> uh not against Carl Ove, but against her her parents. Right. Uh, so I'm I'm back to I guess back to my old tricks and I I am gonna read Thomas Barnard's ex, ex, extension. So right, well you know you do have this other side. There's there's the snobbish yeah. high art side, which I think most listeners probably associate with you the most. But there's also the Marxist side. Yeah, and is there something in here or in Steinbeck in general that is appealing to your? You're feeling that the game is rigged, that there's economic injustice, or we're all pawns in the game played by others. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, anytime there is a portrait of work, the working class and the portrait of um, the whorehouse and any kind of hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, I find that very, very engaging. I mean, it's an interesting contrast to someone like Edith Wharton who it it seems like primarily about people with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to be sympathetic to the characters in East of Eden up to a point. And that's when he shifts focus and there's develops another plot line because he's a very smart writer. He knows the impact of a character, a fictional character can be very limited. Yeah. 
How is it for you as a New Yorker to travel to the central California of really Steinbeck's home territory? Does it seem exotic to you or do you feel like you're at home, like you can fit right in? I just find it to be like another country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just reading, you know, the I think the the opening of East of Eden is, is gorgeous. The description of the valley mm-hmm. at certain certain years, the valley. He, he says, the Solanus was only a part-time river. It's just a great line, great mm-hmm. description. The summer sun drove it underground. It was not a fine river at all, but it was the only one we had. And so we boasted about it. It's almost like, you know, you, you can hear echoes of how Hemingway might handle this, mm-hmm. but it would, Hemingway would be like, well, the, the way you can feel it is not to, for you to, for the writer to judge it. And Steinbeck's take is there's something wrong. There's, there's injustice here. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we need to we need to like talk about it, right? Speaking of Hemingway, uh, I have a quick <laughs> quiz for you. This is multiple choice. Which author did Steinbeck call quote possibly the best writer in the world today? Oh my God! <laughs> A. Ernest Hemingway. B. William Faulkner. C. Himself. Or D. Al Cap, creator of the satirical cartoon Little Abner. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go with Faulkner, but I, I'm guessing it was, it's Al Cap. It was Al Cap. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Steinbeck, God. Steinbeck's a bit of an odd duck. How many pencils? Yeah. Here's another quiz. How many pencils do you think he used when writing East of Eden? Oof. Thousand? No. But it was over 300. He sometimes used 60 pencils in a single day. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Prolific. Okay, so let's see. What else do I have here? So, you know, I'm glad that you like the description of California. I think there is time. He is a very readable author. I think voice, he's really good at voice. Maybe even I would say he's better at voice than prose. But his most famous passages... Mm-hmm. are these homilies or words of wisdom. And I think I used to be more cynical about mm-hmm. these, but as I as I grow older, I'm less impatient with them. I, I reflect on them. I give them a chance. I think about new generations and hope that they're growing up wise and kind. It's a little patronizing, though, because I, I, I sort of feel like I like the idea that Steinbeck is teaching other people you know, like high school students. And I, I think not me, I don't need this, but I'm hope, I hope that other people are getting something from him that helps them become better or it helps them uh, learn more about themselves. It, it feels, I think that's why a lot of students object to Steinbeck. They, they read it and think, this is what grownups want me to read and want me to think. And mm-hmm. he's, sometimes it feels like he's the Captain Obvious of novelists. Yeah, I mean, it's... Maybe the the time to read him is when you're a little older. And maybe he's, it's the case, I've, I've thought this with other writers too, is that you have one great book in you and, you know, yeah, the rest of it really doesn't compare. It's like, uh, I remember when I was working with a professor, uh, I was a graduate student and the professor, we were reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and the professor was, 
a man in his 60s and he had children later in life. Like I think he was in his late 50s. He had a young child. He was about 61 or 62, but he had like a three or four year old girl. And he said, you know, his whole life he was viewing Uncle Tom's Cabin as most people do, which is mm-hmm. it's polemical and it's really tug on the heartstrings kind of stuff. And you can admire it for what it did and its its role in American history or its political impact. But it's kind of hard to read. It's kind of like some of the worst of Dickens as far as sentimentality. And he said, you know, I've been cynical about this all my life, and I don't know if it's because I'm a parent now or what it is, but I found myself weeping as I was reading it. And, you know, I I don't want to deprive anybody of that feeling. And when Steinbeck says something like, I wonder how many people I've looked at all my life and never seen, uh, I kind of roll my eyes at that a little bit. I kind of cringe, like, Mm -hmm. oh boy, you know, listen to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Listen to Dudley do right over here, you know, but yeah. but if somebody is reading that and they copy it out or they underline it in their text and they they think, yeah, isn't this the truth? Isn't this isn't this what we do? We we don't really see people when we look at them. You know, who am I to say that that's a bad thing? It's certainly a a, a positive sentiment. It means no harm. Those kind of homilies when they're taken as a blurb or a bit out of out of context they, yeah. they they ring differently than embedded in a book like yeah i think the the portraits of the characters in east of eden like this is this is a description of kathy the character i was saying is just su- such a remarkable character it's uh let's see kathy always had a child's figure even after she had grown slender delicate arms and hands tiny hands her breasts never developed very much. Before her puberty, the nipples turned inward. Her mother had to manipulate them out when they became painful in Kathy's 10th year. Her body was a boy's body, narrow-hipped, straight-legged, but her ankles were thin and straight without being slender. Her feet were small and round and stubby with fat insteps, almost like little hoofs. She was a pretty child, and she became a pretty woman. And then it jumps to... Kathy was different from other children in many ways, but one thing in particular set her apart. Most children abhor difference. They want to look, talk, dress, and act exactly like all of the others. Kathy had none of this. She never conformed in dress or conduct. She wore whatever she wanted to. The result was that quite often other children imitated her. And then we get this line. As she grew older, the group, the herd, which is any collection of children, began to sense what adults felt, that there was something foreign about Kathy. Mm. The portrait of her constantly shifts also, mm-hmm. which I think is very clever. Because, you know, in Dickens, sometimes you get the character, and then the character never changes. And yeah. there's a little, I don't know what they, what what the term is, where the na- even the name yeah. describes the character. Right. Like, you know, Lawrence Lip, like, loves to talk, you know? Yeah, Uriah Heep. Yeah. I guess what I felt as I was finishing up East of Eden is I may never read another Steinbeck, mm-hmm. but I can recommend East of Eden, and yeah. I can imagine rereading this book. And that description that you just read, in addition to the plot, which is interesting, the description you read, it's kind of Steinbeck at his best, where... He gets yeah. on a roll and he describes things like like people working 
and different jobs. And you, you do kind of feel like he's a good person at figuring out how things work and then getting that into his prose. People chopping wood or mm -hmm. preparing meals or like making coffee the old fashioned way. Yep. Um, there's something very, very comforting about those kind of passages. Yeah. And the way he treats military service mm. um, will go off to fight and that kind of stuff and uh, the military parades. I mean, I just find all of that so uh, exotic. I mean, I find, <laughs> you know, it's like the America that I don't really know. Yeah. So, right. I, I mean, I, I enjoyed that aspect. Even when you know it, then it you, you feel like, oh, good, this is this is the stuff that other writers aren't covering. This is not the, uh, I don't know. There's something nice about being recognized when you're, even when you're in that world. It's a different type of realism. Mm -hmm. the, the, I think what people maybe object to is uh, they would like a little more psychology of the characters mm -hmm. instead of uh, the action. Yeah. But then again, I mean, I, I can imagine a time when people elevate him, maybe not to the level of Melville, but more than just, you know, high school or junior high school reading. Okay. Well, we're coming to the end here. I've got a, a uh, game for you called Fair or Unfair. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize. And when asked if Steinbeck deserved the Nobel Prize, one well-known American author said, quote, frankly, no. Is that <laughs> fair or unfair? Um... I, I mean, we've done the Nobel Prize episode. There are some pretty shady people who've gotten it. <laughs> so <laughs> along those lines, unfair. Okay. Well, plot twist. The well-known American author was Steinbeck himself. <laughs> <laughs> so you've jumped into my, uh, my number two for fair or unfair, which was when he won the Nobel Prize, the decision was heavily criticized. And one Swedish newspaper called it, quote, one of the Academy's biggest mistakes. End wow. quote, which I was going to say was unfair, but, you know, they made so many other big mistakes. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, here's the, here's the last one. The New York Times called Steinbeck an author whose, quote, limited talent is, in his best books, watered down by 10th rate philosophizing. And noted that, quote, the international character of the award, the Nobel Prize, and the weight attached to it raised questions about the mechanics of selection and how close the Nobel Committee is to the main currents of American writing. End <laughs> quote. Is that fair or unfair? <laughs> Little fair? <laughs> I mean, it. what a strange... I, I think it's unfair. What a strange way to attack a writer. I mean, the, the, the Nobel Prize has never been uniform yeah. in its assessments. They've been all over the map. Yeah. So to say that one writer is attuned to the, the heartbeat of a culture and one isn't, I mean, it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it it uh, it is a it's a little, you know, it kind of reminded me of when Barack Obama won the Nobel Prize and he oh, hadn't right. really done anything at that point. Um, yeah. You know, and he won it for peace. Really, the only thing he wanted for was, I guess, the fact that what he represented, the first black president, but also right. that we were coming off of the Bush Cheney years. And so it was viewed as, 
as a uh, a turn away from the Iraq war, which is really unpopular, and especially in Europe. And but it right. was almost like he was a little bit embarrassed, you know, <laughs> that he it was it was kind of yeah. like uh, you know the joke about him on the Daily Show and things like that, where that he was you know viewed like Jesus, or that he was this sort of people were projecting these this whole like this halo onto him and then all of a sudden he wins the nobel prize <laughs> like he had been in office for i think a year or less than a year he wins the nobel prize for peace so it sounds like it was a little bit like that for steinbeck like he was he was probably pretty happy with his career and then all of a sudden he wins the nobel prize and he's he sounds like he was almost a little embarrassed about it and he had to take a lot of criticism and a lot of uh a lot of people uh it should have been a great day for him, and instead it was a little mixed. When, when did he get it? What work did followed? Uh, um, did well, the prize follow? It would have been after East of Eden, I think. Let's see. Oh, okay. He won it in 1962. Mm. Yeah, and it was awarded to him, quote, for his realistic and imaginative writings, combining as they do sympathetic humor and keen social perception. So, you know, the Grapes of Wrath. I mean, these were, these were, uh, he was a humanist and of wait. mice and men. Like, these are. Wait, so I, I have to ask you. So, what Steinbeck have you read? Because, I mean, I I feel like you, you've you read Mice and Men and yep. Mice and Men and uh, Grapes of Wrath. Yep. And I've read in preparation for this, I went to the library and checked out everything they had. Mm -hmm. And it, I didn't finish East of Eden, I dipped into it. Mm -hmm. I and he's got like all of these they're published they're sort of novella length you know they're really thin mm -hmm. really short cannery row and and a bunch of others I read here and there I didn't read many of them all the way through I was kind of surprised by how his his style was different in different books I wasn't really expecting that I like Steinbeck I want to like him more than I do I think mm -hmm. I'm ultimately a little bit I found myself a little bit put off by some of the corniness you know sort of the uh, the homilies that we were talking about earlier, I would kind of roll my eyes a little bit. It has to like operate on different levels for it to work uh, beyond just the homilies. I don't know. For me, I guess there was so much churning and movement in Stavidin mm. that I was able to get past it. But I definitely did, if, if this counts for anything, I definitely did a lot less underlining. Oh, because I, I primarily read holding a pencil and mark as I go, and I mark passages I like or underline stuff. And with East of Eden, I just kind of sunk. I, I you know, I found myself sinking into the book and just enjoying it and not underlining anything. Mm -hmm. So right. that was it was kind of a new experience for me. Yeah, well, that might be the way to read Steinbeck. Is yeah. You know, That's, not to underline things that will seem momentous, and then you take a closer look at it a second time, and you think, well, actually, that's what is that really saying? That's just sort of an obvious point. Yeah. But to just let the whole experience, just to enjoy your time with Steinbeck, and to let the whole experience of the story, just yeah. uh, just to enjoy the storytelling. I I really enjoyed East of Eden, but there there was a part of me sometimes there were a couple of moments where I was like, I really love Thornbirds. <laughs> with Richard Chamberlain and Raquel Ward, like, is this like, <laughs> is this like the literary equivalent of Thornbirds? <laughs> so I can remember when Thornbirds was on. <laughs> yeah, what a show that was! 
Yeah, they always show um, Thornbirds and Shogun. Christopher Plummer was in that. I know, Shogun. That's another one. Yeah, that I back watch. and forth. Yeah. Well, I think Shogun can't show its face. I think it's not. It's just not acceptable. Oh, really? That one we've moved on beyond uh, I feel Shogun. Like it. Yeah, I'll have to dig up some op-ed about I I love Shogun, but... <laughs> yeah, it's those 80s. I mean, it probably started with Roots and yeah. those those miniseries that were on network TV when we were like 10, 12 years old. Roots, The Thornbirds, Shogun, The Winds of War. Uh, <laughs> those, those were... And they'd get movie stars to be in them which was kind of rare you know movie stars didn't often appear on tv but like robert mitchum would be in them christopher Plummer, um big stars richard chamberlain (laughs) those were good days (laughs) i was a little too young i guess that was probably uh it probably seemed really grown up to me at the time (laughs) okay well president mike thanks as always for joining me on the history of literature thanks jack That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike for joining me for that discussion of East of Eden and a little bit about Angry Raisins, my new favorite Steinbeck novel. Hey, if you'd like to support the show, you can join us at patreon.com slash literature, where I can now confirm that we are going to have special bonus content again in April. So sign up now, dear listeners, and get a free special episode of the History of Literature. This one has a story about a woman who embarks upon a marital experiment that takes an unexpected swerve. Maybe this will be the Cosmic Journey episode. Speaking of Cosmic Journeys, we'll be back soon with more History of Literature podcasts. Some great ones just around the corner. I'm glad you were here for this one, and I hope you'll join us for the future episodes, too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.